uh, we are in Ephesians. I heard a, uh, I heard a, not a story, but it's a, as in a make-believe story, but uh, it was a survey done by uh, Dallas Theological Seminary out in Dallas, Texas. And uh, they did this survey on churches and membership and why people come and why people go. I mean, if you've been in churches at all, you know that people come and go these days uh, rather frequently, and that's uh, sort of a new phenomenon uh, in recent history. And uh, they, did some, they did some surveying, and what they found out uh, was that, uh, one, people were leaving uh, more frequently, and they said that, that didn't surprise them. What did surprise them were the reasons and some of the primary reasons why people were leaving these days as opposed to why they were coming and going in churches before. It, it wasn't surprising to them that the idea of having a, a home church that you're committed to and connected to and, and, and they are committed to you, uh, vice versa, uh, that was becoming a strange thing in our day. But what surprised them was the reason it was becoming a strange thing. Uh, it, it used to be, uh, back before what you might just broadly considered uh, recent history, it used to be that when people left a church for another church, it was because of some doctrinal uh, distinctive that was in error. All right? Put another way, something went wrong theologically. Or because of an error theologically, something went wrong practically even. And uh, people wouldn't, wouldn't stand for that. Uh, they would deal and they would struggle with a whole lot of stuff. But when it came to error in theology or doctrine, then, then, then that would be like the only deal breaker, it seemed. Uh, they said what surprised them was that that wasn't the reason why people moved on, left, bounced around anymore. It was because of their needs not getting met. It wasn't because of truth. In fact, what they found was that people would sacrifice truth. Check this out. Uh, as if this should be shocking to us, right? That people would sacrifice truth to go somewhere else because their need for maybe their family or this ministry was better or this provided something that the other church didn't. Uh, they would be willing to sacrifice truth here because of this need getting met here, right? And that should just kind of uh, blow Christians, believers away. Uh, can I tell you that I, I actually had people tell me uh, when we first moved here to start this church uh, six and a half years ago or so, uh, I went around and I knocked on so many doors just introducing myself to people. And um, I, I ran into some people that I had known from a previous church. And uh, I said, I said, hey, where are you living now? And they said, oh, we, we live in this area now. And I said, oh, that's great. Where, where are you going? Well, we were going here, but then we decided to go here and that didn't really work out. So we went here and I said, well, you know, what, what was, what's, what happened? What's going on? And they said, well, we really like this place. Like they really taught the truth and they believed the truth and everything was great as far as doctrine and theology goes. But they were really missing in this area with our, with our kids is what they said. And so we went here and our kids fell in love with it. The, and here's what he said. The teaching wasn't really good. In fact, there were some things I disagree with in the theology. But the kids really liked it and had a lot of fun. So that's where we've ended up. And I just wanted to throw up all over the guy. Um, now, you understand the problem with that, that we are so quickly to just say, eh, truth, doctrine, theology, that's secondary now to whatever we think our needs are, our Burger King mentality of um, have it the way you want it, right? 
And if not, then we go down to the next fast food restaurant. And that's kind of crept into churches a little bit, right? Um, Ephesians, at least the first half of it, is nothing but truth. How about we just look at a little truth this morning? Can we, can we bear with just some straight doctrine, some straight theology, some just truth? And as I've said the last couple of weeks, there's not even going to be any commands. You're not even going to walk out of here feeling guilty that you have to do something. All right? So it's another vacation day as far as that goes. Just grab hold of truth. Here's where we've been in Ephesians chapter 1. After the initial greeting and we spent some time talking about how in the world could Paul call us saints because we get included in that now down through the ages in the writing coming from a divine author. We get called saints here. How can that be? We know ourselves better than anybody. Uh, I'm not a saint uh, in my own thinking, but Paul and God believe I'm a saint if I'm in Christ. And so then he unpacks how he could call us saints in that next long run on sentence, verses 3 through 14 in the Greek. It's just one long thought. It's one long, complete idea in Paul's mind. And it's just jam-packed. It's like this web of truth and theology. It's broken down roughly into a trinity, if you think about it. He told us what the Father's part in eternal salvation is. He told us how the Son infiltrated humanity in time and space and made the Father's plan doable. Like the Father has this eternal plan for our redemption But the Son came in, in time and space, took on the form of humanity himself, bridged the gap between God and humanity, lived a perfect life so that he could make legal what the plans of the Father were from eternity past. Does that make sense to you? Like it's one thing to dream up a path towards salvation in eternity future. It's another thing to actually make it legal in time and space so that our redemption can have the gavel slammed. Remember we talked about Hosea and Gomer and so that Jesus could be Hosea and we could be the Gomer and so that he could buy us legally back and we could be his and he could be ours. Jesus came in and he made it all, he made it all right. He squared the playing field. He, 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 made, it, he made it right again with the Father. So that the Father doesn't just sweep our sins under the rug and overlook them. That's not, that's not forgiveness in the Bible. Forgiveness in the Bible is that our sins get, get washed away in the blood of the Redeemer. And so we saw the eternal plan of the Father played out in, in the Son, the redemption that He provides for us. But there's a third part of the Trinity, right? And so now we get to see the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit do? And remember what I said last week, that... This whole thought just points back to God, back to God, back to God. It takes the focus off of you and I and the pressure, mind you, when it comes to our salvation and puts the the focus and, you could say, the pressure, the onus on God himself. And that's great news. That's, I think, why we call it the gospel, the good news. I think that's why it's called the good news is because we don't have to carry the burden The burden gets put on the Father to carry out the plan through the Son and now watch and see the part that the Holy Spirit plays. Now, let me just say this at the beginning. This is not the complete work of the Holy Spirit in these two verses. Verse 13 and 14, what we're going to look at this morning. The Holy Spirit does does so much more even, all right? And I'm not going to preach that sermon today, but there's there's at least 10 things that the Holy Spirit is employed to do in the believer's life once we are in Christ, okay? And he even does work in bringing us to Christ. There'll be more of that unfolding and unpacking in chapter 2. 
But just see the part that the Father, through Paul, in Ephesians, wants us to know about the Holy Spirit here in verses 13 and 14. Let me tell you before we start what, what these verses uh, are, are about in 13 and 14. Some of you have heard me use this illustration before, but back during the, uh, the building of the Golden Gate Bridge, in the initial phases of the Golden Gate Bridge, they really didn't have any good safety devices. And uh, in that initial phase alone, 23 men fell to their death working on the Golden Gate Bridge. I mean, that's an expensive bridge in life, isn't it? Uh, not to mention the real cost in, in dollars. And so they wised up. They said, we've got to do something here to create some sort of safety net. And that's exactly what they did. They put a safety net up. And during the last phase of the building of the Golden Gate Bridge, 10 men fell and would have fell to their death had they not brought in this safety net and put it under the Golden Gate Bridge while these guys were working. Ten men fell, but they all lived. Uh, even more interesting to this story is that in that final phase, they realized that 25% more work got done by the workers up on the bridge. Now, why would that be? It's because they knew they had the safety and security of that net. They would not plummet to their death, even if they fell. Uh, in a sense, that is one of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit. He creates for us, and in these verses, I think, I think the author would have us to lean back in the arms of the Father, trusting in what He has done through the Son, knowing in a real way, because of the Holy Spirit's work, that we are secure. Remember, all of this thought in Paul's mind points back to the Father and says, trust in Him, trust in Him. Take eyes off of yourself, take trust off of yourself, put it in the Father, in the love, the eternal plan from eternity to eternity, played out in the Son, and what we'll see this morning, sealed in the Holy Spirit. How can we uh, finish the work? All right? Last week, what we saw right there in the, in the Son's part of this uh, passage is that we, now who are in Christ, we, we are this preview. Remember we talked about this last week? We're this preview to eternity future. So that when the world looks into the church, it sees a preview, a glimpse, a snapshot of what they'll see in heaven. Black, white, young, old, rich, poor, living together, no seating chart, right? Nobody has to sit in the back. Nobody gets to sit in the front. We don't tally up what you put in the box and give you more voice in the church. But the world should be able to look in and, and catch a glimpse, Jew and Gentile alike, all together in Christ, the summing up of all things. Remember last week? He gets put back at the head. Christ will. We, the church, are a preview to that. To where one day all things will come together and Jesus will be put back as the rightful head of all creation. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. He'll get what he deserves. Right now, this body, the church, we're a view toward that. We're a preview of what, of what everyone will know one way or another in the end. So that they'll know now and come to the grace that we've come to in Christ. But how do we, how do we, how do we confidently walk this out? The redemption that we have, you know, we're Gomer. How do we confidently walk now in the love of our bridegroom without any doubt 
Well, he comes along and in verse 13, he says there's another, there's another part that God plays here in the form of the Holy Spirit. Follow me here now in verse 13. In him, who's the him here? Because we're jumping around in, in these pronouns who we're talking about. In him, go back to 11 and really 12. We're talking about Christ, the one who legally secured our redemption, who bought us back. In Christ, you also, and you remember he had a whole lot of we pronouns, and then he comes down in 13, and I threw this in. It was kind of a sermon in a sermon last week. In him, you also. Who were the we? The we back in verses 11 and back in verse 7, Paul was talking about we, meaning the Jews. Paul being a Jew himself. We Jews, we got this, and then he comes along in 13. In him, in Christ, you also. Who are the you also? That's the rest of us, the Gentiles. And so collectively, there we are again, the church, the preview to eternity future. You also, all of us together in him, collectively, after listening to the message of truth, hearing it, hearing the truth. What truth? The truth of the redeeming work of Hosea, the truth of the redeeming work of our bridegroom. After hearing what Jesus has done to nail down the plan of the father, in time and space, on the cross. That's the message of truth. Or he calls it something else here, the gospel of our salvation, the good news of our salvation, the good news that I don't have to do it, that Jesus has paid the price for me in time and space so that now I can do what? Look what it says. Believe. In him, Christ, you also, so that's all of us, Jew and Gentiles, after listening to the message of truth, the redemption of Christ, the gospel of our salvation, the good news that he has saved us, we didn't save ourselves. We have now also believing you were sealed. And so let me point out something here. It's not just the hearing because a whole lot of people heard and a whole lot of people continue to hear, but there has to come that next part of it, which is also a work of the Holy Spirit that we'll, we'll talk about another day. That's another message. But there is a believing that comes with the hearing And upon that believing now, he says, we are sealed. We're sealed. Now notice who we're sealed in. You see, we're sealed in him. Who's the him here? It's still Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but maybe a little bit of clarity in just your thinking of this sealing thing. Maybe you've heard this concept before, but I always kind of thought about it. it, The Holy Spirit is who I was sealed in. But if we track the pronouns here, we're not sealed in the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that is the seal. And he seals us in the him who did the redeeming. That's Jesus. So that when God looks at us, when the Father now looks at us with a preview to eternity in the future, what does he see? He sees us in Christ, sealed by the Holy Spirit. Is there any comfort there? Absolutely. Absolutely. Church in Christ, that's not, that's not, that's not all, I might say. Um, God's even gone a step further for us. He has granted that there be in the Holy Spirit a security for us. That we don't just get put in Christ and maybe we can jump out and jump back in and jump out and jump back in. There is in the eternal plan of God, this sealing of us in Christ. 
you were sealed in him, in Christ, with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit gets called what here at the end of the verse? A promise. Again, Paul is just heaping phrase upon word, upon phrase, upon thought of helping us to understand the work that God has done on our behalf. He's made a promise to us. And the promise is in the person of the Godhead himself via the Holy Spirit as a seal on what Christ has done because we are in Christ and now we get sealed in him. Let me tell you what a seal means in Paul's mind and in the first century readers' minds. A seal was used in government for a few things. Number one, it was it was used to uh, convey the authenticity or the genuineness of a document. So if there was a if there was a document that needing authenticity granted to it, they would put a seal on it. They would melt some wax. They would use their signet ring, right? Remember that ring that the uh, that the son received from the father, that the, the prodigal son received from the father, that he gave him the ring back? That was, a, that was most likely the family ring, the signet ring, so that he had now the authority, the prodigal son who was, who was redeemed, he had now the authority of the father to plant the seal of the family, okay? And so when you put your seal on a document, it meant that you were saying that this is an authorized document by the one whose seal or signature that is on it. And so for us who are in Christ, it's God saying that via the Holy Spirit, via the Holy Spirit, I certify the work that was done in Christ, planned out in eternity past for eternity future. The Holy Spirit is that seal on your life so that you know it's an it's an authorization of the father. It's the stamp seal of approval of the work of the son, and it comes via the Holy Spirit. He is the stamp. He is the seal. It was also used uh, to indicate property so that if you, uh, if you were trying to say that this is the official property of someone else, you would put your stamp, you would put your seal on that thing. For us, that means to convey that we are no longer ourselves. That as we are in Christ, the Holy Spirit's seal upon us is a reminder to us that we have been bought with a price, the price of the Redeemer's blood. And so the Holy Spirit comes as not just a seal of authenticity, but a seal of our ownership. We're owned by a new Lord. We're owned by a new master. We belong to God. There's at least another thought here in this idea of being sealed. It was something used to convey the idea of making something fast or secured. You remember when Jesus was put in the tomb and they rolled the rock in front of it, the Romans sealed the tomb. Most likely, they probably put a cord across the rock and they put an official Roman seal over that cord so that if the, if the cord was broken, if it was removed, then everybody would know that somebody is tampered with this body. It's, it's that sort of idea that in Christ, the Holy Spirit seals us in a way that conveys not just authenticity, not just ownership, but security. No one can tamper. It's that, it's that yellow caution tape that says, don't, don't cross this line. And it's put on by God via the Holy Spirit over our hearts and our minds. Remember what I said earlier? This is just, this is just 
truth for you, believers. It's truth for you to stand on and live by and walk in. Knowing that the Holy Spirit does all these things for you. Provides authenticity. Am I in Christ? Um, The first devotional I got after I was a Christian in high school, I got saved in 11th grade. Somebody gave me this, uh, you know, yearly devotional. It was by Billy Graham. And I still remember the first page, the first devotional by Billy Graham. It was a story of of, uh, how to understand the Holy Spirit. And uh, being a new Christian, this was this was hard for me. I've never forgotten this story. It was so simple, but it it it, it uh, I will say that I think by the Holy Spirit, it, it's been affirmed over and over and over. And the story went that there was a, a young man flying a kite in the park, but it was a cloudy day and he's flying this kite and the kite has gone up and up and up and up and it's in the clouds, way past the clouds. He can't see his kite anymore. And this guy comes by kind of being a smart aleck and he says, hey, kid, what are you doing? And the the kid says, I'm flying a kite. And he says, no, you're not. And he says, yes, I am. No, you're not. Yes, I am. And uh, the guy says, well, how do you know you're flying a kite? He said, you can't see the kite. Can you? Kid thought. He said, no, no, I can't. And the guy says, well, how, how do you know there's a kite? And he says, well, sir, every now and then I feel a tug. And that's how I know the kite's there. And Billy Graham went on to make just the very simple point. And I've never, I've never forgotten. He says, every now and then, Christians, you'll know that you're in Christ because you feel via the Holy Spirit this tug. One theologian called it the holy hug of the Father. Uh, this is probably unexplainable to those who are not in Christ. But for those who are in Christ, um, we don't even really have words to convey it to each other. But you just know that there is a love from the Father And that comes to you by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that acts as an authenticity of you being in Christ. The ownership confirmed to you that you are his and he is yours. And the sealing and the security that the Holy Spirit brings. That's that tug on our heart. That's hard to explain, but it's there. Um, Jesus put it this way in uh, John chapter 10. Don't turn. Just let me read this to you. Um, I don't know if you understand this, maybe in this way, but uh, one one pastor put put it this way when it comes to theology, that the Gospels are sort of the acorn of our theology and the epistles become the oak tree. Now, what that also means is that what you see in the epistles is the is the growth of what was planted in the acorn of the Gospels. Does that make sense? And so the seeds that are planted In the Gospels, we often see the apostles, the disciples unpack them. They they sprout for us. You want to know where the acorn, I think, of uh, Paul's words here in Ephesians are? At least in part, John 10. Just listen. Jesus' own words, I think, are the seed for this teaching here in Ephesians and in other places by the apostles and the disciples. John 10, Jesus says this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. In those days, a shepherd would have his own call to his sheep, and it would be a unique call, so that when the sheep heard that whistle or that call, whatever it was, a yelp, I don't know, whatever they did, it was unique to that shepherd, and those sheep would hear, would hear, and they would know the voice of their shepherd. Uh, growing up, my brother and I, we had... Uh, from our father, our own call. 
And as a kid, I really thought this was kind of cool. And as I was thinking about it yesterday, I was kind of more like, you know, it's kind of something you do with a dog, I guess. But my dad had this whistle, right? And it started when we would go hunting. We'd go out in the woods and we'd be scattered different places. And uh, my dad had this whistle. And if we heard this whistle, we knew instinctively, number one, we knew who it was. And number two, we knew it meant find me, right? And it, somehow it got transformed out of just being out in the woods to where if we were in Walmart or a grocery store or the mall and me and my brother somewhere got scattered, we would hear this whistle and we'd be like, what is that whistle? But then we knew it's the voice of the father and we're not where we ought to be. It's the same idea here that the shepherd had this call to his sheep and Jesus would teach at least in the seed here. What I think Paul unfolds a little bit in Ephesians, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. In the Greek, that's called a, uh, a double negative of sorts. It's called a, a moi, uh, an ume negative. It's in, in our English, it would be uh, a redundant statement, but it would also cancel itself out because it would be two negatives. I ain't going to never do that kind of thing, right? We don't use that sort of language, but in the Greek, you could use that. And it was, it was a double negative, but they would use it for an emphatic. And Jesus uses that as an emphatic here. They will never perish. Ever. Not. Don't. Won't. Happen. Sort of thing. That's the, that's the verbiage here by Jesus. I give eternal life to them and they will never, ever perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Here's the picture that we in Christ, we get put in the hand of the son. And that's good, right? That's good. If I were to take a take a coin out and place it in my hand and dare any of you burly men to come up here and, and snatch that coin out of my hand. I don't really care how big, big an old boy you are, right? It'd be tough to get something small like that out of a man's hand, wouldn't it? But now what if I put another hand over the top of it? I mean, you might be able to get it out of my hand like this, Ricky. Maybe, you know, you work pretty hard if you bit me, kick me in the shin or something like that. That'd be tough. But what if I put my other hand over it, Eric? Would that be a little harder? You're a big old boy. You still might be able to pry my finger up one at a time, but that'd be even more difficult, right? What Jesus says is not only are we in his hand, But then the hand of the father comes over the hand of the son. But then there's something else. There's there's over over the hand of the son and the hand of the father. There is this official seal of the Holy Spirit that binds it all legally and securely together. And we're deep inside there somewhere. And the chances of you getting it out of my hand are slim. But the chances of you ripping or being ripped from the hand of the Son and the Father with the seal of the Holy Spirit is by Scripture impossible. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in the eternal plan of the Father. Isn't that good? We're sealed by the Holy Spirit in Christ. In Christ. We're not just a seal. Back to Ephesians. We are also granted by the Holy Spirit. What he calls a pledge in verse 14. This Holy Spirit, this promise, who is given as a 
pledge of our inheritance. And what is a pledge for our inheritance? It's a down payment. A pledge comes from this uh, ancient idea uh, back to first century real estate and probably even before that. Think about this. Uh, a pledge is, uh, is the idea that if you were going to negotiate the purchase of land or property or house, you had to give what was called an earnest, right? If you were going to tie up the owner and the real estate agent of the day in this purchase, right, for any long time to, to work out negotiations, they would require of you so that they knew you weren't just wasting time, they would require what they called earnest money. This word pledge could also rightly perhaps be translated, he's given to us as an earnest of our inheritance. What this is, is, is that you have to give up some cash up front. If you're serious about this deal, you give me a deposit, right? It's the same now, uh, especially now, if you're going to buy a house. Uh, a few years ago, you could get away without the earnest. But especially now, you've got to come up with a certain percentage, and it's now a high percentage, because we've got to know that you're serious about this, and we've got to know that you've got the cash to back up the deal. And so if you want to tie us up in negotiation to buy this property, you've got to give us $500, $1,000, $200,000, whatever it is. You've got to put down a payment. And guess what happens if you walk away? You lose it. You lose it. And so this was a serious deal, this, this idea of being an earnest or being a pledge. If I pledge to this and I walk away, you get to keep what I've put down as an earnest payment. That's what Paul means by the Holy Spirit being an earnest. See, how does that, how does that work? Well, think about it. God the Father has secured in Christ, in time and space, your redemption. He now gives us... Paul says, the Holy Spirit as a pledge to the inheritance that has been bought in the blood of Christ. So the Holy Spirit now is our pledge to what we are owed because of what has been purchased on our behalf. So here's, here's the amazing, mind-blowing part and the impossible part. It's as if the Father has said, I'll give you a down payment. And if I don't come through, if I don't have the money to finish the deal, if I don't have, if I don't have the, the cash to back up what I'm saying, if I don't have the payment to finalize this deal, guess what? You get to walk away with my deposit. Uh, you should be thinking at this point, can that happen? Can the Father give the Holy Spirit default on His earnest and let us walk away with the Holy Spirit? That church is an impossibility, and Paul knows it, and God knows it. That's how confident we are in the work that God has done for us. And now as we look at the Holy Spirit at the end of this long discourse, he just continues to heap and heap and heap upon the reasons why God the Father is to be praised and glorified because of his grace. The Holy Spirit now is our down payment. He's a pledge of our inheritance. How do, how do you get an inheritance? Someone has to die. Has someone paid with their blood? Sure has. Remember what we got called? We got called sons by adoption, daughters by adoption earlier in this passage. 
Uh, one theologian put it this way. This pledge, this earnest money, it's as if we as sons and daughters bought by the blood of Jesus, right, are debt paid. We are redeemed, bought back. It's as if our adoption has been paid for. We're still, so to speak, in the orphanage waiting for the fulfillment of it, for the, for the completion of it, for the summing up of all things where the head gets put back and all things get made right and time and space comes to an end, the church age comes to an end, Jesus has every knee bow and every tongue confess and the adoptions of sons and daughters is fully and completely realized. That payment has been made in Christ. And he has given us in the Holy Spirit the confidence, the security, the hope, the promise, the earnest down payment of the third person of the Trinity so that we know he will finish the deal. Look at what it says here in 14. This Holy Spirit of promise given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. What he's saying here is he's looking back now to eternity future and that God will complete this redeeming act of Christ in time and space. The fact that Jesus has redeemed us, that is, that is done and paid for. But at least three times in Scripture, this idea of redemption gets used as a chronological summing up the completing of our redemption. Let me give them to you. Romans 8, having the first fruits of our Holy Spirit, we groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, the completion of the redemptive work of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1, Christ has become to us several things. He says our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification. And in the end, there's a chronology there to all those things. Wisdom, righteousness, sanctified. In the end, the completing work of the redemption that was purchased in Jesus the Holy Spirit becomes our earnest of what he will finish. The third place that redemption gets used chronologically is here, Ephesians 1. And so the Father purposes in eternity. The Son is the power to enact the plan of the Father. And the Holy Spirit, you could say, is the pledge on the deal that he will come through with the cash, the payment on your behalf. And Jesus will step in front of you in all of eternity and you will be found in him white as snow, sins as crimson once before washed away in the blood of Jesus. When Jesus stood in the Jordan River to be baptized by, by uh, John the Baptist and the heavens opened and the voice of the Father descended as if a dove what did the Father say? This is my beloved Son. In Him I am well pleased. How do we be found? Pleasing to the Father, be found in the Son. Only in the Son and in His redemptive work is the Father pleased. We get put in Christ. The secure hand of the Father over and the stamp, the seal of approval of the Holy Spirit to help us know that God's work from eternity past to eternity future cannot be called into question. And we just sit back and get blown away and amazed. That's the seal, the stamp of the Holy Spirit. Uh, you can think about this. Uh, you can uh, rob somebody at gunpoint. You can just go into their house and you probably get probation or something first time. 
But if you take something out of somebody's mailbox, they will lock you up and throw away the key. Uh, I remember when uh, early on we were trying to get the word out about this church, and uh, I was just going around and putting things. I knew better uh, from previous offenses. I knew better that I couldn't open someone's mailbox and put anything in there unless it had what on it? The official stamp seal of the U.S. government postal office on it. To do that would be treason. I mean, that's messing with the powers that be. You can't do that. You know what I found out the hard way? You can't even put anything on the mailbox. Do you know that? That that entire mailbox and the pole and everything right down uh, until it hits the grass is property of the USPS. And if you go tape something to someone's mailbox, uh, some guy out there, I've had it happen, will call and report you and they will send you a letter. It's serious business. Uh, even more serious, even even more important, even more glorious is the seal, the stamp that the Holy Spirit is for us. What a gift from the Father. I mean, wouldn't it have been enough that we had we had the Father and then the working it out in time and space in flesh of the Son? I mean, wouldn't that have been just great? I mean, you and I would have probably stopped there if we'd have gotten that far. But somehow in the eternal workings of the Godhead and the Trinity and all that stuff that we have a hard time really understanding or even putting into words that sufficiently explain it, we also have this Holy Spirit that plays a part and points back to the Son. It's amazing. Look how it ends up here. End of verse 14. It's the completion of his thought. For now the third time you get the same phrase. To the praise of His glory. Who's the His now? Who's the pronoun now? Um, Is it to the praise of His glory now the Holy Spirit? Is it to the praise of His glory now the Son? Because the Holy Spirit's job is to point back to the Son. Jesus said that Himself. That that would be the role of the Holy Spirit. Or is it go all the way back to the eternal plan of the Father? Uh, I'm going to leave that one to your homework. See if you can figure out the pronouns in this. I thought I knew. And then I thought, well, maybe, maybe it's the other. Or maybe it's two out of three. Maybe it's all. Um, I, I think suffice it to say that the Godhead complete, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit deserves Deserves the praise and the glory. And it all goes back to the one word added at the beginning. You remember that in verse 6? To the praise of the glory of His grace. This whole passage and all the way until we start to get to the commands, it's an unpacking of what is God's grace. What part does the Father have? What part does the Son have? How does the Holy Spirit play a part? It's all grace. It's all grace. Let's pray. As you uh, calm your mind and, and you consider these things to wrap up our time together and you, uh, you ask God to whisper to your heart, I'll tell you one more story I heard. George Foreman um, 
How do you, how do you fit a George Foreman illustration into this message? I'll tell you. George Foreman has, has a bunch of kids and uh, he's got some boys. Named each of his boys. Guess what? George Foreman. Didn't have just one George Foreman. He had, uh, I think, three or four George Foremans. It's confusing. But somebody asked him one day in an interview, why did you name all your kids George Foreman? And he said, well, it wasn't out of, it wasn't out of pride. It wasn't because I wanted them all to, to glorify me. He said it was because I, I thought I knew my father, and then it turned out I didn't know my father. The father he thought was his father in his childhood turned out not to be his father, and it, it, it rocked his world. And he said, when I had children, I wanted them to know whose they were. I wanted there to be no doubt whose they were. I think the heart of our father is for his children, that there be no doubt. That is, in great part, the blessed work of the Holy Spirit. And so as we wrap up, and uh, Ricky's going to do one last song here, I'm going to ask you to stand in just a moment. And uh, we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to make himself known to you, even this morning. Father God, as we, uh, as we stand here to, uh, to sing one last hymn and, and depart, having heard truth in your word, would you take this truth and, and apply it in all wisdom and insight to our hearts and minds? Yet another help of the Spirit is that He helps to to apply the truths of Your Word to the very depths of our heart. So Holy Spirit, place these truths with Your delicate hand at just the right place in our heart and in our mind. For the one who is here this morning who who's not sure who their Father is, their Heavenly Father, not sure if He loves them, not sure if His love is fickle or not. Holy Spirit, do Your work this morning. Your work of authorization. Marcus is genuine in only the way you can. Tug on our heartstrings. Apply all the truth of your word at a heart level, Holy Spirit. So that the words on these pages are not just words unapplied or unemployed. Holy Spirit, put them to work. Set them to the task of conforming us into the likeness of Jesus Christ, the firstborn among many brethren, our cornerstone. Give us great confidence, Holy Spirit. That we might walk the rest of our days having you as a pledge to the inheritance to come. Assure that we are sons and daughters, legally adopted by the Father, by the payment of the Son. Be our surety, Holy Spirit.
so that as we finish our days on this earth, we will know, we will know that when we stand before the Father, we will know His voice. And He will know ours. And we in Christ climb up into the Father's lap and be eternally embraced. Be that surety, Holy Spirit, in a way that passes all understanding for those who are here this morning in Christ. And I pray it makes us leave this place with a great big smile on our face and in our hearts, knowing that from beginning to end, you have done it, God. You have saved us. You have elected us. You have adopted us. You have redeemed us. You have sealed us. Beginning to end, we trust you. We trust you. And that's good news for us. That's good news. Speak to us, Lord, in these last couple moments. In Jesus' name, amen.